Our scripture text for the sermon today is from Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 56. I will read it. This is the word of the Lord. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many new things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, so we're here in, math, in Mark chapter 6 this afternoon in our series on the Gospel of Mark. And just to recap, the topic of the Gospel of Mark is the good news about Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So the sermon title for today is Good News for the Hungry. Each Sunday we look at the good news of Jesus and some aspect of it. And today we come to a story that, if you've been in church for very long, you know this story 
You've heard it many times. Jesus breaking one little boy's bread and feeding 5,000 people. In chapter 8 of Mark, the story is going to repeat itself, um, except with 4,000 people this time. And there's a big shift going on in this part of the Gospel of Mark. So up to this point, Jesus has been ministering. He's been the one healing. He's been the one feeding and doing uh, the preaching and teaching. In chapter 6, he sends out the 12, his disciples, who begin to minister in his name. And they begin to do miracles, heal people, and preach the kingdom of God in all of the towns and villages where Jesus is going to be coming. So he sends out his emissaries or his missionaries. And we're going to learn what this means for us to be followers of Jesus, uh, what it means for us to be some of his disciples. He gives us a message. He gives us power. And then in, the, in this beginning of our passage, chapter 6, he gathers them back together in verse 30 and 31, and he says, come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest a while. So his purpose is to give them rest. And as you know, um, that this rest doesn't happen, if you can tell from the story, um, the crowds that had met all of these disciples and seen the miracles that they were doing, it says in verse 32, that when they went into a place by themselves, that many saw them going and recognized them. So now not only is Jesus recognizable, but also his disciples are recognizable. The people who have been with Jesus, and they're recognizing them, and they're following them, and they go out into a desolate place. At this place, um, a very pivotal verse here, if you like to write in your Bible, verse 34, I think, is the key verse to understand this. It says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So Jesus' response to seeing crowds of thousands of people is to teach them. And as the evening drew on, his disciples became concerned that these people were hungry and there were 5,000, it says men, that could be a generic word that meant people, but it's also possible those were just the men in the, in the, in the, con in the group, in the crowd. So it could be possible there were up to 20,000 or more people. Um, I think the biggest Christian gathering I've been in was 7,000, and that was in a stadium in Louisville a few years ago. So this was a huge crowd of people. And Jesus was certainly lifting up his voice to teach, and people were being very quiet to listen to him for so long now that his disciples come to him and maybe interrupt his teaching and say that they, he should send them away to the villages to eat. And our story that reflects this one in chapter 8, it says that it was too late for them to eat, but in verse in this story, it says that his disciples just said that he should send them into the villages. Well, even large villages in those, in those days in the area, Capernaum and Bethsaida, were somewhere between two and 3,000 people. So if there were up to 20,000 people who needed to eat, then even dispersing into these villages was not going to be sufficient. And so Jesus tells the people, the, his disciples, give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. As Jonathan in his reading correctly emphasized, you give them something to eat. Well, they said, how will we find 200 denarii? This was about one year's wages. So you might say 30, 
on our money today to feed five, up to 20,000 people maybe. Um, and he says, well, how much food do you have? And they said, as you know the story, two lo two, five loaves and two fish. Uh, we learn in another of the Gospels that this was one young boy's lunch. And he commands his disciples to have them organized into groups, and then he feeds them. We don't know if it was his hands himself that as he broke it up, or if he gave it to his disciples and it was multiplying in their hands, but somehow the food was multiplying and he was feeding the people, so much so that when they were all full, satisfied, it says here that in verse 42 that they took up 12 baskets. Those could have been big fisher bas fishermen's baskets as they were on the seaside of Galilee, um, but at least it is, it is telling us that Jesus provided more than they could even eat. And if you know um, how much thousands of men could eat, this was a lot of food. If you've watched The Chosen, I don't know if any of you have seen it, I think it's, for me, a good idea not to watch it because it starts to put in my mind all of these things that they're trying to imagine maybe it happened that way. And then as we read the story, we kind of see those visuals in our minds of what happened, which maybe isn't the way it happened because they were trying to imagine and fill in the spaces of what the Bible doesn't tell us. So we're not sure if it was the disciples breaking it or Jesus, but in the end, as they gathered them up, there was more than enough. Now, we're going to look at this story, and, and you, you notice that Jonathan read through all the way to the end of chapter 6, and we're going to handle the miracle of him walking on the ocean, on the sea, similar as we've already seen in, in Mark, that he calmed the sea. And so there's a, some repetition in Mark, uh, as you can see in chapter 6 of feeding 5,000, chapter 8 of feeding 4,000. Previously, I think it was in chapter 5 or 4, where he calmed the sea in chapter 4, verse 35, that Jesus calmed the sea. And again, here in, verse, in chapter 6, he does a similar sort of thing in showing his uh, power over creation. So we're not going to continue to spend more time on those themes. And when we get to chapter 8, we're going to go over the story of feeding the 4,000. We're going to read it, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. Um, but today I want to look at three questions. Maybe you've been in church your whole life and you know this story very well, or maybe this is a brand new story to you. But I want to consider three questions in this story. First of all, is this story true? That's a big and important question. Because if it's true, the second question is of utmost importance. What does it mean? Um, was this just a random feeding of people or does it mean something deeper? And thirdly, what does it matter? Why does this story matter, or are we just wasting our time to gather here on a Sunday and Sunday after Sunday the way we do and look into this book? So first question is, is it true? That's the first question. Now, um, at this point, it's important to say that there has been, in the last 300 years, some attacks on the reality of this story. Was this a true story? And it came principally from 17th century philosophers that had a school of philosophy that in German, if you speak German, is called Naturphilosophie, which is very easy in English. It's just the philosophy of nature. And it comes from men like Hegel and Schleiger who pr promoted the idea that 
nature and natural ways of seeing results is really the only thing that ever existed. And if we as humans see something that looks supernatural, there's really some natural explanation behind it. And we need to work to find the natural explanation rather than receiving simply by um, ignorant faith the supernatural. And so this history has, this, this idea came about because of the Enlightenment. Some of you have read about the history of philosophy and you know that the Enlightenment was the age of reason where men uh, assumed that we can, ass we can know everything by reason and then that resulted in nature, that we can know everything from nature and that resulted in a lot of other applications of those philosophies, secular humanism, as well as some political and economic philosophies like communism and other things that developed from there. So these men um, were so influential that it made its way into, first of all, the English and the German churches, um, where they began to say, okay, well, naturalism, we want to be reasonable. We don't want to be unreasonable and think that one man came from God and he divided one little boy's lunch among 5,000 people and had 12 baskets left over. And so what they did was try to find all the reasonable explanations in the Bible that would not require us to believe in the supernatural, in miracles. And this created what we see in the liberalization of churches in Europe that has made its way into mainline churches in the United States. Um, R.C. Sproul has categorized the, um, let's say, uh, theories of these naturalists of what actually happened on this day if it wasn't a miracle. And I'll just tell you what they were. First of all is the hero myth that Jesus never actually did this, that after his death, his followers because like John Bunyan, who they created stories about the strong man and you get this mythological figure, that his, after his death, his disciples created these stories. And some of them were, for example, this one, that he could feed people uh, with many uh, pieces of bread. A second theory is called the moral victory theory. And this theory was that Jesus didn't actually do this at all, that what he actually did was encourage everybody to share their lunches with those who don't have lunch, and everybody had enough. And that was the first redistribution of wealth in the modern world. And he was a moral sort of teacher that taught us to share, and that's really what we're supposed to learn from this. A third theory is called the int intentional fraud theory, which is that Jesus actually faked this miracle. And maybe his disciples knew he was faking it or maybe not, but he actually had a lot of food that he had stashed away and somehow pulling it from under his robe one at a time, he fed 5,000 people and made it look like it was a miracle. Well, this has become in our country of the, in the West and it started in Europe and has come in the United States, the water that we swim in that is to say that we automatically assume, because of our post-enlightenment philosophy that has made its way into our culture, that whenever we see something supernatural or something amazing that may be supernatural, we want to find a natural explanation for it that doesn't require the supernatural. Um, we, we have seen in our country and in this city 
the liberalization of churches because of that. And one lady this week at the uh, Kids Life was telling me that their church used to belong to the United Methodists, and they went to one conference where they were scoffing at them for believing that Jesus is the only way and that he is the Son of God who really does provide salvation. And then, after they were criticizing this, then they would sing the song, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. So they're maintaining their Christian songs while denying the foundation that they're standing on. Uh, if this is, story is not true, and these theories are at all possible, then we are, of all people, the most foolish, who are wasting our time to come together on this Sunday and any Sunday to talk about this book or about Jesus. And it seems like the only philosophy we should really consider is this is true or nihilism, that nothing means anything, but we should not hold on to this to be true, or, or to, we shouldn't hold on to this to be God's word or partially God's word, but cut it up. We should either keep it with all of our hearts or we should just quit all of this nonsense altogether. So why then can I give you some reasons that I believe that this is a story that really happens. I hope if you already believe this is true, to drive the stakes of faith deeper into your heart. Um, if you're not sure, you have those seeds of doubt, maybe these thoughts could help you. So first of all, I wanna start with a presupposition um, because our, our culture starts with a presupposition that supernatural does not happen. I wanna start with a presupposition that the maker of, the, of nature can break in and break the rules of nature for his purposes. It is not a stretch at all if we believe in a creator that that creator could break into the natural, the natural that he created and do something supernatural. Secondly, purpose. This supernatural act follows a pattern of purpose. That is that God does miracles that make sense for the good of people. And it, we're gonna see a little later why this fits in with everything that God has always, always done and he has prophesied that he was going to do this. For me, that's a great proof of who Jesus was, was all the prophecies that God could only know. This is what God built into the prophets, is this confidence that what he was saying to us is true because he foreknew it and told us before it happened. This is something that's not easily explained by the natural world. A third reason is that the eyewitness testimonies of the four writers of the gospel in this story in particular is overwhelming in its specificity. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who each wrote, wrote about this same story of the feeding of the 5,000 without variation. Now, if four authors tell the same story and it was recorded during their lifetime, not hundreds of years later, but during their lifetime, it was recorded and believed. This means that Jesus would have needed to either deceive not only the crowd, but also his own disciples. So they were either deceived by Jesus, like he did this magic trick, like the naturalists might like us to think, or his own disciples packed, made a pact together that they were going to make up this story and they were going to take it to the grave. Because never in the lifetimes of any of the disciples and followers of Jesus did one of them say, actually, that didn't happen, or it didn't happen like that. There was complete agreement for their whole lives, with no exception, that this happened, and that Jesus did this. 
It seems impossible that Jesus could have faked his 12 disciples so that they wouldn't have known that he was actually hiding 5,000 lunches under his robe. Uh, and the, the ability of those 12 and, and those around that were able to see to have kept this as a lie for the, until their death seems also very unlikely. The last point, or the last, maybe you could say, um, evidence is that the contemporary readers at the time who were reading this that were alive would have been able to refute the story. And there is no record in all of early Roman history of a contradictory account of this story, though this story was believed by all early Christians. That is to say that no one doubted this story happened until the, early, the late 1600s when the naturalists determined that it couldn't have happened because of their presuppositions that God does not break into nature and do anything supernatural. So while I cannot prove to you this thing happened, I can't prove to you any more than you can prove that anything that just happened happened. What we have is eyewitnesses and people reading about it and hundreds of years of transmission of this story and I think beyond a reasonable doubt we can believe that this story is true. So that leads us to our next question. What does this story mean? Was this just a random story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people? Does uh, sort of like I would notice that my kids were hungry and I pull into the drive-thru? Or did this mean more? To be able to answer that question, what this means, and I want to tell you, uh, present to you three things I think it means that we can see in the Bible. We have to go back into the Old Testament and the prophets that came before this. Sort of like if you were watching my favorite movie, which you all may know by now, Les Mis, Les Miserables. If, you know, if you're watching my favorite movie, and if you've not seen Les Mis, I encourage you to watch it, and you see uh, Javert throwing himself off of the dam and the, the bridge in Paris, I think it was, um, to his death, and you just turn the story on to watch that, you would have no idea what built up to all that and what's the significance of that. Similarly, you can't really know the significance of Jesus feeding these 5,000 if you've not looked into the story and you've watched the movie of God, let's say, the story of God and man from the beginning until now. So I'm gonna take two highlights from the Old Covenant promise, uh, prophets, read them to you so that you'll have a bit of a under, background understanding of what it meant that Jesus did this. So first of all, I wanna to read to you from Numbers chapter 27, verse 15 to 18, and if you have your Bible, you can go there, or I will just read it to you. So in the book of Numbers, God had brought the people, his people, the Hebrew people out of Egypt. And they were in the wilderness. And they were, they were coming to the end of their wilderness wanderings and they were going to be crossing the Jordan into the promised land. This place that God had promised them. And it says in Numbers chapter 27 about the prophet Moses. And we all know about Moses and if you come from the Middle East, for example, you call him Musa. But he's a very well-known prophet the greatest next to Abraham of the prophets before Jesus. And it says, Moses spake to the Lord, saying, 
Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. That the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So you see, the prophet Moses speaking to God said, these people are like sheep and they need a shepherd. Would God, you appoint someone to be their shepherd. And if you know the story, who did God appoint to be their shepherd? In verse 18, directly after Moses. Anybody remember? Joshua. His name in Hebrew, Yeshua, which is the same name, meaning the Savior, as our Jesus. So Moses prayed, God send a shepherd for these people, and God sent a man whose name was Savior, Joshua. But this Joshua, the Joshua who lived thousands of years before Jesus, led his people faithfully until his death, and then he died. And so his people were again left without a shepherd. And, in, and they, they stopped following God, began to follow idols, and I want to point out to you another passage happening after the fall of the people. So this is in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34. This is a very famous chapter about the shepherd of his people. I'm going to read part of this because it's 16 verses long, what I would like to read to you. But because of time, I'm just going to read uh, a portion of these verses. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking. Um, a prophet in the Old Testament some seven, eight hundred years before Jesus. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to seek or search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. So in the first part of this, Jesus, or God, to the prophet Ezekiel, is rebuking the leaders of Israel. Not like the faithful Joshua before him, but like unfaithful leaders. They were eating the sheep. They were killing the people. They were sucking out all they could get out of the people for them to be rich and for them to drink wine and be drunk with their friends and they were taking the wool and the fat, and he was using that as an illustration. They were taking taxes from the people, and they were using it for themselves. If you've experienced political leaders and religious leaders who use God's people and who use their position to get rich and to make themselves wealthy rather than serving the sheep, then you'll understand what God was saying to these shepherds. So what is God's solution? 
The solution with Joshua, the man whose name meant Savior, only lasted the generation of Joshua. And then shepherds came who ate God's sheep instead of feeding them. So what does God say that he's going to do? He said he's going to come and he's going to destroy these shepherds and he's going to take them away from their place. And they're no longer going to be in this role. And then what does he say? I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. Jumping to verse 11 in Ezekiel 34, it says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness." And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. Listen to this, what it says. Now remember, this is some more than 600 years before Jesus. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down on good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring them back, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So hearing that, prophecy in the Old Covenant. Let's read real quick what it says to me in verse 39. If you look at chapter 6 of Mark, verse 39, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Mark mentions, now Mark wrote this, this story hearing from Peter. This was after the winter rains and all of the plains around there would have been green with grass. It was a wilderness in that there was no food, there was no homes, but it was a green place. And he said, sit down on the green grass. So they sat down by groups, by hundreds and by fifties, and this should remind us of how Moses divided up the people in the camp that they would group themselves under their rulers by hundreds and by fifties. And then in verse 41, he took the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the bread, broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to sit before him. So what does this matter? Well, um, Batu, he was here with me and I were talking about a political leader in his country who takes from the people. And if he thought maybe he would come to our country and find a really good political situation where our politicians serve us, and think of us, and don't mistreat us, and overtax us, and abuse us, he might be very disappointed. Religious and political leaders, because of their sin, have always abused God's people. And we have here the promise of God, if you are in a position where you are looking to be fed, and you are hungry, and you are tired of being mistreated by your politicians and by your religious leaders. This is what this promise is for. Jesus said, I, God said, I am coming to seek my sheep. And so the meaning of Jesus bringing them out into the wilderness 
You notice he called his 12 disciples to follow him into this desert place, purposefully bringing them out to this dry and desert place, and then the thousands followed him, maybe up to 20,000. And out of all the cities and towns, God calls his people, and then Jesus feeds them himself. And he uses his disciples not to, keep, to make themselves rich from the people, but quite the opposite. He, from his riches, blesses the people through the leaders. And he's setting all the things that are wrong in this world, and he's setting them right. And he's showing them us how the kingdom of God works. It works the opposite of the way the kingdom of men work. It works as the, the servants, or the, the leaders are the servants, and they are the conduits of blessing and giving to people, rather than this world where those shepherds who are supposed to be serving us are the ones abusing the people. And this is God himself coming. So the meaning of this is that Jesus is our good shepherd. What does Psalm 23 says? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. It is no mistake that Mark said that he caused them to sit down on green grass. This is not just a story of Jesus feeding people that didn't have food. This is a story of the creator of the universe coming to us and feeding us and showing us how his kingdom is going to work for all who would follow the good shepherd Jesus. So God in his sovereignty will lead you sometimes into a wilderness. Some of you are experiencing a dry and place of neediness, and you don't know where God is and where his voice is. This is the purpose of Jesus coming, his presence and his provision. Jesus called them out of the cities into the wilderness so that they would experience two things, his presence and his provision. This is what God called his people out of Egypt so that his presence could be with them and he could provide for them. And this is what we receive in Jesus is the presence of God and the provision of God for our daily needs. And he doesn't give us more than we need for that day, but every day he gives us more than we need. That is to say, he may not give you more than you need or enough for tomorrow, but for today, he gives you so much that you have more than you could use. And I think those of us who know Jesus know that's true. So the meaning of this is that Jesus is showing himself to be that shepherd that, that God would come for his people. The second meaning is that Jesus would be the bread, that not only is he the good shepherd, but he himself is the bread. So what is this drama all about that Jesus calls people to the wilderness, teaches them so long that they're hungry and can't find food? He is teaching them that he will be their provider and he will provide himself. Mark doesn't talk a lot about this, but John does, the Gospel of John does in chapter 6. After this, this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is a pivotal story. It's not just like a one-off story like the story of Herod. So in the story of Herod that we learned last week, you see a contrast to Jesus. Herod in his palace, rich, off of the people, receiving all of their taxes, making himself rich, drinking wine with his friends, and cutting off the head of his prophet, John the Baptist. Contrasted just a few verses later, not in a palace, but in the wilderness, not with the taxes of the people, but from God, Jesus giving of himself, 
feeds the people. Not only is Jesus our good shepherd, but he is the bread that he was feeding the people. Do you realize that God created hunger so that we would understand something spiritually? Not, we often think that we can understand physical things from spiritual things, but God actually created physical things so that we might understand the things we can't see. So he created us to feel hunger so that then he could meet our hunger with bread. And here Jesus does that. He creates hunger in them, and then he meets their hunger. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So that means that God created hunger and thirst in us so that we might know that when bread satisfies our hunger, we're still left with a spiritual hunger. Jesus is the word of God who that can fill our hunger. What is it that we understand from the Old Testament that Moses said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Even in, for our Muslim brothers, uh, Jesus is known as which means the word of God and the spirit from God. So this is his title even in their sacred scriptures of the Quran, meaning that the word of God is the person of Jesus. And so if man cannot live on bread alone, what does it mean that man cannot live on bread alone? Humans are the only creatures who are not satisfied by having their needs met physically. So if you have a dog or a cat and they have a home and they have food and they have someone to pet them, then they don't complain. They're kind of just happy until they die. But humans, you can meet every one of their needs and there's still going to be this deep hole in them that Augustine called a God-shaped hole that God created for himself to fill. And as humans try to fill it, the way that Herod was doing, that we talked about last week, the idols of the heart, as humans try to fill their need in their life with other things, God says, only my word can fill your need. Jesus is the word made flesh and he fills our needs. So the meaning of this, that Jesus was feeding people through this miracle was that if you're looking for real spiritual fulfillment that doesn't leave you empty, Jesus is that. Jesus Christ is the word of God made flesh, broken for us on the cross and distributed to all who will receive him. So yesterday we sat with Cindy's mom who she's with us today and we're gonna pray for her at the end of the service and there was a phrase that your sister has on her counter on her desk there that says for this I have Jesus and she's um, Kathy, Cindy's mom, is in her last days on this earth. So what do we have in those days? What does naturalism do for us that says, well, this is just the natural course of things. You live and then you die and it has no meaning. It doesn't do anything. It's as Viktor Frankl, who experienced the concentration camps, wrote in his, meaning, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that there are no atheists 
in those concentration camps, that there are people who then begin urgently to seek for God in our suffering. So why then so much death, suffering, and hunger in this world? If you're a skeptic, you might see the story and say, well, that's very nice that Jesus fed those 5,000, but what about the hungry, the hungry that are still with us? What about the rest of the world where people still experience death and suffering and hunger? How is it that God is still good if he could meet those needs but doesn't? This story gives us one answer, not that we understand why all suffering exists, but that we have a God who enters into our suffering with us, that he comes out into the wilderness with us, and he experiences everything that we experience, all the hunger that they were experiencing. God himself came into, made himself into human flesh and experienced our hunger. But not only our hunger, he was arrested, he was whipped, he was beaten for us, he was crucified and he experienced death, an unjust death, of a horrible, painful death in our place. So we may not understand why all suffering exists, but we can go to those who are suffering and say we have a God who understands and who's strong enough to get under that suffering with you and stay there with you. And he can give the victory because he overcame suffering and death on the cross. So as we sing, it is finished upon that cross, that the cross is enough for us. Jesus, only Jesus, let me love you and trust you more and more. This story points us to the fact that Jesus is the bread. He's not just the shepherd who leads us to the bread, but he is also the bread for us. That we can say at the point of death of a loved one like a dear mother who we heard wonderful stories about yesterday, or our own, we can say for this, we have a God who understands. There's a third meaning, though, that I, I, I think is very practical for our church, and this is not just that Jesus is the shepherd and he's the bread, but Jesus is the compassionate disciple maker. So I want you to look at verse 34 again. I told you that this was a key verse for us understanding this story. It says that when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. That Greek word there, it means, his, it says literally, if you were to read that in Greek, in the language it was originally written in, it says, he saw the crowd, and his bowels moved within him, which is a modern equivalent in English that we would say his heart moved. His heart was moved for them. I don't know how you say that in some of the other languages you speak, um, in Arabic, we would say, if we love someone, we would call them our kidney. Kibda diali, we say in Morocco. I don't know, well, I should not say Arabic, I should say Moroccan uh, language. My liver, not kidney, you're my liver. We would say this. I don't know if they say something similar in Turkish or in other languages where we try to describe something going on inside of us. But basically, Jesus' bowels were moved with compassion, meaning, not just that he had some mental understanding that these people needed something, but he had such an inner response of compassion for these people. And that he, he made his discipleship, his disciple-making purposes was to create disciples who felt the same compassion for people. If you look at the beginning of the passage we read in verse 30, it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. 
And what they had done was gone into villages and into homes, and when someone was sick, Jesus had given them the power to heal, and they healed people. And when, and when someone was possessed with demons, they could have compassion on that person, and Jesus gave them the power to heal that person. And so they came back together, and they were filled with enthusiasm of all that they had done and all that they had taught. Now, if you compare this for one second to the growth of any other religion in the world, this is absolutely not only unique but miraculous, that the, following, the followership and the discipleship of Jesus happened as he sent his disciples out not to kill with the sword until people came to their religion, but not only to reason like the Greeks would do with their superior philosophy, but that they would do and teach, that they would show the same compassion that he had and that he, they would teach them. When Jesus had compassion, he taught, but then he met their physical needs. Now, liberal churches are focused on compassion, and they, they are involved in justice, and they are involved in equity and equality. But they have lost, because of their naturalism, and they've denied God's word, they've lost the gospel. But fundamentalists, or let's just call them fundamentalist churches, though they are always speaking truth, lack compassion to where their gospel is also lost because nobody believes it, because what they're saying doesn't match at all how they're living. And they're talking about the love of God, but they're yelling it, and they're not showing the love of God. And while I think the first error is worse, because if you lose the gospel, you have no seed that might regenerate, we also need to come away from our fundamentalist only preaching, only teaching, and show such similar enthusiasm for compassion. To do that, we have a problem because we experience what's called compassion fatigue, where you give to people to a point that you're tired and you get hurt because you've given of yourself so much that you find yourself empty and you go through an experience of hurt that then you harden your heart or your bowels in this case to where you don't want to feel that compassion any longer because if you were to feel it, then you might need to do something about it, which if you do something about it is dangerous and hurtful to you. So what can we do with this problem? What can we do with this situation? The Bible says that in verse 36, Jesus, uh, or verse 37, he said to them, you give them something to eat. Why would Jesus tell them that they should give them something to eat? Well, you could say there's two options. First of all, he really could have been telling them to give them something to eat. I think the second option is most likely true, that he was pointing out to them that they don't have the resources to give them anything to eat. They didn't have the food, and they didn't have the money. And he said, okay, organize them, and I will give through you. So in our, over, we're overwhelmed by the need, and we're afraid of the need, we're afraid to get close to it and to show compassion. Why? Because the resources that we feel we don't have. So I'll just do this little mind game with you. Imagine that you are the son of an Emirati uh, oil king or Texan, whoever. You have oil money, okay? 
And you come to this city of Dearborn, and you see the needs around you. A family has a house burned down, or a young boy I met this week whose um, bicycle had broken its back tire, something as small as that. But you know what it would take for me to help Mahmoud with his tire? It would take my time. It would take money, and I don't have a tire. I don't even have a bike in this country. And so what do I do for him? What do we do for a family without a, with, whose house is burned down? What do we do for people all over our city that are completely in deep need? Now, if you have the resources of all the oil money in the world, what would you need to do? You would just start to organize, wouldn't you? You would just organize. Organize the need, organize the people, pay for it, and get things in to make things happen, to meet the need. And that is all that God wants us to do. He told his people, I know you can't meet the need, but I want you to organize yourselves and organize them because I'm going to meet the need through you. So what I think the message for, for me is today, and I think for our church, um, and this is me coming out of my fundamentalist background, is that this city will not know Jesus until they see Jesus through us. Some of you do an exceptional job of showing Jesus. I think that the Lord is using this as a rebuke to me to teach me that we need to lead and organize ourselves. And we need to, before we do, to meet the needs, but before we do that, we have to open ourselves up to feel the compassion. We need to open ourselves up to let our bowels move within us for the hurt and the hunger of people around us. And that then we can, by faith, trust Jesus that he is going to meet this need and that he's going to do it through us. You might ask then, uh, what, do, what do, I will ask you this question because you would not ask this, what do ants have to do with preaching the gospel? And I'll tell you this short story to finish. Um, I was with a few children last week uh, and they were participating in kids' life. And one of them stopped coming. And uh, a boy, I won't mention his name, but one of the boys said, he's not going anymore because he's not happy because they're telling kids about Jesus. And he doesn't believe in Jesus. And I said, but you're still going? And he says, yeah, I'm still going. I said, why are you going? And he says, because I know, and I don't want to embarrass anybody, so I'll just say that they, I'll just use plural they, he said, I know that they love us, and they're the nicest people I know. He said, they're the nicest people I know. And he said, and when our house had an infestation of ants, they came to my house and they paid for our ants to be, for, it, for, the, for the, he called it the bug killer. He didn't know the, 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 the term, what do you, I don't even know the word, <laughs> exterminator. He said, they paid for the bug killer to come and kill all the bugs. They care about us, they just want us to be saved. And he said, no, but I'm staying in my religion, but they care about us, and they just want us to be saved. Uh, Jesus is the bread, and he is the shepherd. He is making out of us. He wants to make out of us disciples who will feel with the same compassion that he feels. Have you, do you allow God, do you allow the needs of people around you to move you? Or are you protecting yourself? Protecting the lack of resources or the hurt you're afraid you'll experience if you open yourself up to it. I wanna challenge you today with this, that the Father 
will feed his people through this church if this church will, will open up and care as passionately about meeting the needs of the hurting and the hungry as we do teaching them, not one over the other, but if we are so passionate about them knowing Jesus as we are about feeding their hunger, that's the kind of church that Jesus is making us into. So let's pray. Father, we, we know that your good news is good news for the hungry. And we've felt that spiritual hunger. And so many of us have found you to be sufficient, but we get scared of what could happen if we open ourselves up to the world and its hunger. But Father, I pray that you would make our community to be more and more like Jesus, to feel the, the movement of the Spirit in us, that we would reach out and love people who don't yet know you, and that as we speak your gospel to them, we would also trust you for the provision Lord, I pray over these next few years that we would organize ourselves and organize the need and that we would trust you as we open up our arms wide that you would flow through us and you would empty us and refill us again and fill the need and, and let us experience 12 baskets left over that the nations might come to the shepherd of their souls. And I pray for those who have experienced uh, the sort of hurt that comes from serving so long and so deeply that they run dry without experiencing the sufficiency of Jesus, that they would know that you've led them through that too so that they can come back to you and they can experience a fullness again. Finally, Lord, I pray for those here who are, have not yet believed in Jesus, that they would come to him. But that, that they would experience him to be what they've been looking for, to fill that emptiness of soul that they experience. And as we take the bread and the wine and remember your sufficiency, may we remember that you are enough for today and that you desire for us that we might rest, that we might come into the wilderness, a desert place, and rest with you and enjoy your presence as our shepherd. In Jesus' name.